So I'm going to start off with the um, Bible reading. Um, the first one is Deuteronomy chapter 10. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your ancestors and loved them, and he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and not be stiff-necked any longer, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. Fear the Lord your God and serve him. Hold fast to him and take your oaths in his name. He is your praise. He is your God who performed for you those great and awesome wonders you saw with your own eyes. Your ancestors who went down into Egypt were 70 in all, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars in the sky. And Matthew, the passage that we will hear um, preached to us this evening, Matthew 5, 33 to 48. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but, but fulfil it to the Lord, the oaths you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot even make even one hair white or black. All you need to do is say simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. You have heard that it was said eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, Hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, g'day. My name is Rob Forsyth, and uh, I've just this year joined the staff team here at Church Hill. I am the assistant minister with responsibility for the 8.30 a.m. congregation. Yes, there are people who go to church at 8.30 in the morning. And what's more, we have the pipe organ, we have the book Common Prayer, we have Holy Communion, we have robes. You may call it weird, we call it proper church. <laughs> it's a great pleasure to be with you now. For reasons that I'm not entirely clear, the, the rector, Justin, has said, would you let them ask you questions afterwards? So there'll be some question time afterwards. I don't expect much answers, but there'll be question times afterwards, okay? Let's, let's pray that God will speak to us as we dwell upon his word. I see the uh, live stream hasn't happened yet. You wonder how the apostles cope, don't you, without all this technology. I don't know how they possibly could evangelize the world. I'll just pray anyway. Lord, may your word live in us and bear much fruit to your glory. Amen. Just wait for this camera to move. Press it's preset number five, isn't it? Number two. Hi, you at home. Okay, let's begin. Sorry about that. Scary and inspiring. That's how I find the words of Jesus in our passage from the Sermon on the Mount today. Please open the passage up because you'll see what I mean. Scary because he seems to be asking things that seem so hard and even dangerous to do. Inspiring because they suggest a fuller, richer way to live life. Scary and inspiring. We're in the third of our series from Matthew chapter 5 to 7. We're going to pause for the next three weeks and return to it in four weeks' time. This block of teaching from chapter 5 to 7 in Matthew is the first of five great blocks of teaching in the Gospel of Matthew. It is indeed wisdom from Jesus. But what wisdom? Now last Sunday night we heard what Justin called Jesus' explosive claim in Matthew chapter 5, 17. Quote, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Those words of Jesus were followed by a series of sayings where Jesus takes statements from God's word to Israel long ago and then audaciously adds, but I tell you. And last week we heard two, one, sorry, three Sayings about two topics, about murder, then two in the areas of adultery. Well, tonight we have three more. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill 
to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, you have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you. Now I have two key principles in approaching these scary and inspiring words. These, you have heard that it was said, but I tell you's. The first is, they're not to be taken in isolation, but in the context of, God, of the wonderful news of God's reign. They're not to be taken in isolation, but in the, wonderful, the news of the wonderful news of God's reign. Number one. Second principle, they're not to be avoided, but taken seriously, though not legally. They're not to be avoided, but taken seriously, but not legally. They're my two principles. Not isolated, but the context of God's reign. Not to avoid them, take them seriously, not legally. Let me start with the first principle. Let's understand these as not isolated, but in context of the wonderful news of God's reign. Now, last Sunday, Justin unpacked some of this, but, but I need to emphasize it as well. The wonderful news of God's coming reign was, the, was Jesus' message. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, we read, From that time on, Jesus began to proclaim, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. What is this kingdom of heaven that has come near? Well, kingdom refers here not to a place, but the exercise of kingly rule, of sovereignty, of dominion, of reign. And heaven is a circumlocution for God. So the announcement that the kingdom of heaven has come near is an announcement that the reign of heaven, the reign of God, the triumph as God as king, is near. And that means the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, not their abolition, the completion of the great story of the scriptures. And a new reality means a new way of living. A new reality means a new way of living. The wonderful news of God's reign means that now people are to live differently. And that's what Jesus' teaching here is about. One other point. Jesus comes not as a disinterested reporter telling about something else happening out there when he announces the coming of the kingdom of heaven. No, as it turns out, he is the centre of what he proclaims. Jesus is the personification of the wonderful reign of God. Although it's not as explicit at this point in the Gospel of Matthew as it will be at the end in chapter 28, 20, the last words, in fact, where the resurrected Jesus will openly say, I quote, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And of course, everything I have commanded you includes these words today. And that answers another question which this text raises. This, who is this man? Who is this Jesus to say, you've heard that it was said, 
but I tell you about God's word to his people. Who is he to issue such strange, uncompromising demands? Who is he? He is the one who has come to fulfill the law and the prophets. That is, fulfill the unfinished story of God and his people and more. The one to whom all authority in heaven and on earth will be given. That's who. And that's why we have to listen to him with utmost attention. These scary and inspiring teachings before us constitute some of the right way of living which Jesus called for when he said, in a few verses before our text, 5.20, quote, I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now these Pharisees and teachers of the law were taken to be the most learned and devout of all. They were the super woke of their day. So a right way of living that surpasses them would really be something. And that's what we have here. Okay, as we approach them, let's turn to the second principle. They're not to be avoided, but taken seriously, though not legally. And here before us in verse 38, 33, 48, there are three. Three, you've heard that it was said, but I tell yous. One about vows, two about justice, three about enemies. Let's start with vows. Verse 33. Jesus says, Again you heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. Uh, this is referencing texts like uh, Numbers 30 verse 2. It's about keeping your promises. I quote that text. When a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath or to obligate himself by a pledge, he must not break his word, but must do everything he said. Now, in, in our society, um, oaths carry a little weight, except in specific legal situations. In the ancient world of Jesus' time and before, swearing an oath that you would do something or do this or do that was everywhere. Now, what is an oath? Well, it's for when you need to speak, not, in, not on your own word alone, but get help so that what you're saying really counts. So you swear by something or someone sacred. It's a kind of guarantor of your truthfulness and your intention to keep your word. In other words, an oath is something you really mean, as opposed, presumably, to other things you might say. And as it was said to the people long ago, keep your oaths, keep your solemn promises. Now, Jesus goes beyond that. But how do you go beyond keep your oaths? I quote, but I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Jesus undoes what seems to be a pious attempts to avoid swearing in the name of God directly by substituting heaven 
earth or Jerusalem. In fact, he says, the whole thing is out of your hands, so don't bother doing it. Verse 36, and do not swear by your head, for you cannot even make one hair white or black. I know times have moved on, but you get the point. Instead, he replaces oaths with simple, straightforward, trustworthy speech. Verse 37, all you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Speak the truth. Keep your promises. There is no need for the distinction between really serious and just ordinary speech. It's all straightforward. Your yes is really yes. Your no is really no. Now remember our principle. These words of our Lord are not to be avoided but taken seriously, though not legally. And I say not legally because there are situations in life where you can't in practice avoid the distinction, at least in other people's minds, between really serious speech and ordinary speech. For example, if you appear as a witness in a court of law, you will make a promise to speak truthfully in your evidence. You can make that promise by an oath. Quote, I swear by Almighty God that the evidence I shall give. But if you don't want to use those words, then you must use an affirmation. I solemnly and sincerely declare and affirm that. But either way, it's more than simply saying yes or no. Same with making a statutory declaration. I do solemnly and sincerely declare. And in that case, as in the court, your words, if you are lying, are subject to legal sanction. Or simply getting married. Very solemn promises. And you conclude, and to this, I pledge you my word. And on another plane entirely, in the scriptures, even God makes promises by an oath. Just look at the letter to the Hebrews. And a number of times in Paul, when assuring what, one imagines, what he imagines is slightly unconvinced readers of his letters, will say, in describing some action of his, as God is my witness. So there are occasions when it's either unavoidable to make that distinction, where you can't avoid it at least. And for reasons like this, most mainstream churches over time have taken the weight of Jesus' words to be not so much no oaths never, but let your yes be yes and your no be no. Rather than banning oaths completely, it is rather truthful speech and promise that are the mark of Christian speech. This is the way our church has dealt with it. In the 39 of the 39 articles of the religion, which are a guide to Anglicans, we find these words, Article 39, quote, of a Christian man's oath. As we confess that vain and rash swearing is forbidden, Christian men, by our Lord Jesus Christ, so we judge that the Christian religion doth not prohibit, but rather that a man may swear when the magistrate requireth in a cause of faith and charity. So be it done according to the prophet's teaching in justice, judgment and truth. When the magistrate requireth as a cause of faith and charity, it is not entirely forbidden as long as it's done truthfully. 
But the point is this. Even when you can't literally keep the commandment of Jesus, we must still take it seriously. That is, it must still do its work in us. It's not, it must still change us and direct us, drawing us to faithfulness in keeping our word whenever, even when at times we have to literally go beyond the simple literal yes or no. Now that principle applies even more so in the second of the three, justice. I quote, Jesus says, verse 38, You heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. Now this rather enigmatic little saying is about punishment or recompense. A number of places in the law of Moses in the Old Testament, that phrase is used for limiting or apportioning retribution or justice. For example, Leviticus 24, 19 to 20. This is rather, rather, rather rough justice, but hear the words. Quote, anyone who injures his, their neighbour is to be injured in the same manner, fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Punishment or recompense? Justice. But Jesus goes way beyond that. Verse 39, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. That is, don't even seek justice. And then he gives three extreme extra commands. In each case, you'll notice they're quite specific, they're quite extreme, and they're the exact opposite of what we would normally do. Specific, extreme, the exact opposite to what we'd normally do. First, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, says Jesus, turn to them the other cheek also. A slap on the right cheek was regarded as especially insulting as presumably, and think about it, it's a slap with the back of the hand. Our Lord doesn't just say, don't hit back. He says, offer the other one as well. Then there's this, verse 40. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. In the scriptures, in the law of Moses, it was forbidden to take the coat of a poor man for any length of time. For example, Exodus 22 and 26. If you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, return it by sunset, because that cloak is the only covering your neighbor has. What else can they sleep in? But Jesus commands, if you're sued for your tunic, you don't just not resist. Oh, no, no. You give him your outer cloak as well. And there's more. The Romans in Jesus' time had a practice of forcing civilians to carry the luggage of military personnel a prescribed distance, a Roman mile. It must have been most unwelcome and onerous. But Jesus commands, not only should you do it, but voluntarily go another one. Verse 41, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. We get the English phrase, go the second mile, from these words of our Lord. And finally, on being asked for a loan. Verse 42, give to the one who asks from you, and do not turn away the one who wants to borrow from you. 
No ifs, no buts. Now let's think about these words of Jesus. First thing to say is this. Although they deal with specific situations, we unconsciously assume they have implications for many other situations as well. Not just the right cheek, as it were. Not just the one mile. Not just the cloak. All of them are in tension with the way in which people normally live and think. In fact, they're contrary. They are specific, they're extreme, they're the opposite of what we'd normally do. And most importantly, they're an attack on our natural tendency to put self-protection first. That's why when you hear them, you feel them either scary, almost like an assault. What? These are examples of what one scholar has called a focal instance. A focal instance. That is, a specific and extreme command of Jesus, which goes against the natural way of responding, which creates a real tension, which what is normal for us, and creates what this scholar calls an imaginative shock, an imaginative shock that forces us to think more deeply about ourselves and our deeper tendencies. It's an instance with this focus, but it has a wide range of implications. Now, remember our principle. They're not to be avoided, but taken seriously, though not legally. That is, there are many times you simply cannot literally follow these words of Jesus. Sometimes maybe you can, but most times you can't for all kinds of reasons. But the point is, they still have a great deal to say to us even when we can't. Can you see the quote from uh, the scholar Robert Tannehill on page two of the zine? I'm just going to read the second paragraph there. See if you can follow this with me. He's talking about the, a focal instance. He says, its meaning for a particular situation becomes apparent not through a process of legal deduction, but only through the imaginative shock felt by the serious reader, a shock that arouses the moral imagination, enabling the reader to see their situation in a new way and contemplate new possibilities of action. He goes on, the reader is invited to lay the saying of Jesus, that is, beside his own their own situation. And through the imaginative shock produced to see their situation in a new way. It's only when this happens that the specific meaning of the commandment can become clear. See, that's why they're both scary and yet because of that inspiring. Because of that inspiring. And if you listen to them, you'll do, you'll do wonderful things from time to time that you never thought you would do because of the words of Jesus. And finally, enemies. Verse 43, you've heard that it was said, love your enemy and hate, love your neighbor rather and hate your enemy. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Actually, this time unusually, this staying is not entirely from the law of Moses, which only explicitly says, 
love your neighbour. Leviticus 19.18. The bit about hating your enemy is kind of an add-on, maybe an implication. You might think, oh, well, I guess love your neighbour. I suppose that must mean hate your enemy. But Jesus will have none of that. Verse 44. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Again, it's the opposite of, our, of the natural tendency. I mean, who likes to be persecuted? Who likes, who likes to have enemies to oneself? What's, the, what's your natural reaction? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute, said Jesus. Both scary and yet strangely inspiring. And this time, instead of the wake-up shock of a focal instance, Jesus gives a different kind of profound way of reimagining ourselves. Quote, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. What is it about God that loving our enemies and praying for those who persecute us marks us out as, a, as his children of our Father in heaven? What is it? Jesus tells us. He, that's God, causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and send rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Now that's empirically true, by the way. Although until I heard Jesus say it, I didn't kind of notice it. It's kind of obvious when you think about it. And if you take his word seriously, the sunrise and weather for you will never be the same. This week I was crossing the street up there at Hunter, at uh, Hunter and um, near, near, uh, Macquarie, and it was Wednesday, so it was dreary and threatening with rain and people going back and forward. We, we crossed against the light, you know. And I suddenly thought of this text. It's raining on the righteous and the unrighteous, I said. I wasn't picking anybody out. I just thought that probably was included, up that part of town anyway, where all the lawyers were. I thought that definitely covers the most of them, right? And I thought, that's happening right now. And suddenly I found myself thinking of, this, of these words of our Lord and how I was to be a child of my Heavenly Father. And I thought of how I was to start to treat people who really annoy me and, 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 and get at me. Jesus' words were working in my imagination. So I want the weather to be never the same again for you, dear brothers and sisters, nor the sunrise. And then Jesus has another imaginative trick up his sleeve. If to imitate God is the highest possible motivation you could imagine, then to be at least better than a genuine deplorable would be the lowest motivation, right? That's exactly where Jesus goes next. Verse 46, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Don't even the pagans do that. Ouch. If you only love those who love you, well, you're no better than a tax collector or a Gentile. Or a pagan, as it's translated here. And if you want to know where the tax collectors and Gentiles stood in the world in which Jesus lived, he gives us inadvertently an insight into his social world and the very low regard they were held. 
In chapter 18 of Matthew, speaking of an issue about if a, if a disciple does not listen to the congregation who's openly sinning, and you've, you've spoken to him and spoken to him, and, but he still won't listen, he's to be excluded, says Jesus. But listen to how Jesus puts it. Verse 17 of chapter 18. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a Gentile and a tax collector. And a pagan, that is, as utterly deplorable. And now Jesus says, well, at least be better than they. It all comes to a climax in the final sentence of today's reading. Be perfect, therefore, he says, as your heavenly Father is perfect. I need to make clear that by perfect, he doesn't mean faultless, but complete or whole. The word, even in English, has two meanings. Whole and whole and complete, as in when you say somebody is a perfect stranger. You don't mean they're a faultless stranger. Or if I make a perfect mess, it's not meaning a mess without fault. We mean a complete stranger or a whole mess. Interesting, I read a book some years ago about giving advice on how to treat etiquette to behave in various religious communities, how to behave in a Muslim community or a Sikh community or a Buddhist community or an Anglican community. And the book played on the two meanings of the word. It said, the book was entitled, How to Be a Perfect Stranger. See, playing on both, both a perfect stranger and a perfect stranger. Jesus means by perfect, whole, not faultless. That is, he's saying, as your heavenly Father is whole, complete, so you are to be. Not just outward behaviour, but the inner heart as well. And although this, in its context, is directly about loving your enemies, because God, your heavenly Father, puts rain upon them and sun upon them, when you think about it, our heavenly Father is known to be the perfect, complete, in all six of the, you have heard that it was said, but I tell you's. God does not murder, but is forgiving. God is faithful to his marriage covenant to his people. God is honest and keeps his covenant oath. God forgives and gives even to those who dishonor him. God loves even his enemies. Now, in an important sense, this sermon does not end. Some of you may have been thinking that already. But what I mean is that these scary and inspiring words of Jesus are meant to stay with us long after the sermon's forgotten. But Jesus' words are meant to stay with us. They're to dwell in us, waiting to illuminate us and be our imaginations and applied in the reality and complexity of each situation we face in our lives. We must let them keep their imaginative force, their shockingness to us, their scariness to us. Keep their power to enable us for a moment to see new possibilities which go against our natural inclination for simple self-protection and self-righteousness. It's only when that happens, when they do illuminate us, when we maybe can't obey them literally, but no, they're still working in us, that what they mean at that moment can become clear. This means that Jesus' words will scare you. And because of that, 
in the context of God's wonderful reign, they can inspire you to live differently. Even as they expose your shallow obedience and cause you again to seek the forgiveness and cleansing of God's grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. Scary? Yes. But inspiring. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, grant that the words which we have heard this day with our outward ears may through your grace be so grafted in our hearts that they bring forth the fruit of good living to the honour and praise of your name through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.